Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. In Frank Zafiro's Dirty Little Town, River City Series Number 7, times are tough for the police. They're understaffed, facing a collapsing budget and layoffs, an upset public, and a tyrant for a new chief. Worse yet, a killer stalks the streets, and he's targeting vulnerable women. Katie McLeod is assigned to stop him. Somehow, she must put aside the distractions and focus on her job to protect and serve. Get Dirty Little Town now. Links are in the show notes. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. This is usually the place where I say Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. But I have a cold, and my voice, well, we'll just see how it goes. I think we may need a little of the modern technology magic on this one. This is season three, Enter the Detective. This season contains adaptations from the first cases of detectives. Some will be characters you know from book, screen, and stage. Others will be lesser known, but with great stories that influenced those that followed. Episode seven is about no good deed going unpunished. This is The Old Man and the Case of Miss Elliot, a lightly edited version of The Case of Miss Elliot by the Baroness Emma Ortsy. All right, Jack, we're going to meet another quirky detective. This one is the old man in a corner, and he is, well, he's an old man who sits in a corner and talks through the latest crimes with an equally unnamed lady journalist. Whenever authors don't name their narrators, I use the author's names themselves, so we'll call this woman Emma. Our story today, The Case of Miss Elliot, was first published in the first collection of short stories with the same title in 1905. The Old Man, however, was introduced in 1901 in the Royal Magazine. There were nearly 40 Old Man in the Corner mysteries published in the Royal Magazine, the London Magazine, and Hutchinson's Magazine between 1901 and 1924. As too often happens, I was not able to find the first story when I was planning this podcast and then unearthed the scanned version of the Fenway Street mystery while I was finalizing the text. A link to the scan is in the show notes. I'm y'all to begin on the document page 16. From this truly first story, the lady journalist, Emma, describes the old man like this. I don't think I've ever seen anyone so pale, so thin, with funny light-colored hair, brushed very smoothly across a very obviously bald crown. So the old man tends to look nervous and he constantly fidgets with a piece of string. We get an idea of the old man himself from the first words he says. There is no such thing as a mystery in connection with any crime, provided intelligence is brought to bear upon its investigation. So you could hear some of our other detectives this season saying the same thing, like maybe Dupin or Lecoq or, or Holmes. 
I would venture even that real-life detective Alan Pinkerton, he would probably say something similar. All right, Jack, now here's the part where you read the script that you haven't read yet. That was very epic. Why, thank you. All right. Um, let's see. The Baroness... Oh, my gosh. Uh, oh, yeah. The Baroness Ortzy, spelled O-R-C-Z-Y, uh, was like the that? short, easy-to-say version of her name. Okay, she has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven names. It is Emma Magdalene Rosalie Mer Machia uh, Jos <laughs> Josefa Barbola uh, Ortzi de Ortzi Orki O R C I. I'm assuming because O R C T Z Y is spelled Ortzi, and O R C I is also spelled like or pronounced Ortzi or something. Anyway, that doesn't matter. She was born in Hungary in 1865, but her family moved to the London. To the London? <laughs> it does say to the London. <laughs> to the London, which is actually a hospital in like the 1960s or something. Uh, when she was three, actually, it might still be uh, the London. Uh, whatever. I'm brain. Uh, she studied fine arts, going to art school where she met her husband, Henry Barstow. Uh, not just Henry. Henry George Montego MacLean Barstow. Dude, what's with these people and having more than four words in their name? I don't know. I don't know. The Baroness began publishing her work in the late 1800s. She is most famous for a series of adventurous stories that were among the first to have the hero as a secret identity. The Sky... <laughs> what? Pimpernel. The Scarlet Pimpernel first had success as a play then in print. Uh, they are a series of stories about a British aristocrat who saved French aristocrats from the guillotine during the French Revolution. I wonder which one. <laughs> one, two, electric boogaloo. Uh, it sounds like the Baroness wasn't just a trailblazer in mysteries, but she created one of the first kinds of superheroes in a way. Uh, by the way, a pimpernel is a small flowering plant, not what you thought it was. What did I think it was, Mom? I don't know. What did you think a pimpernel was? He's just anyway, <laughs> while a plant doesn't scream superhero, neither does Batman or Spider-Man when you really think about it. Some of the superhero names, they're not all that like, ooh, I want to be saved by what? Spider-Man. Yeah, I mean, most people are afraid of spiders. Like, he's likely, he, he would li if he crawled into our house, he'd get smashed with a Kleenex box. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Unless you were the one who was there, and then you decide, oh, we should save the spider and put it outside of our house so it can hatch its millions of little eggs inside of our Spiders insulation. eat things I don't like. The and enemy the of my enemy. spiders don't eat spiders. I do not like spiders. Unless spiders are systematically, like, terrorizing themselves, I do not think I personally want them in my household. They keep flies and other stuff out of your household. Yeah, but they keep spiders in my household. That's I don't think you understand the problem here. You're like, oh, spiders keep everything else in the house. But spiders, Mom, spiders. I don't mind the spiders. No, I, I do mind, mind the, the other stuff. Anything with more legs than me can die, except for <laughs> dogs and cats and domestic animals. I'm right. That's a little harsh. I will go with anything with more than six legs can die. Millipedes, centipedes. Nope, anything more than five. Five? More than five. 
No, more than four. Because if you well, have I five just put legs, spider. I just said four. spiders because I said more than six. So I guess more than eight legs. Eight is my limit. So octopi are great. I suppose so, man. All right. I think we should um, actually get started with the story now. Nah, I think nah. this is a great. I think we should just have a whole episode where we just sit here and talk about spiders. We don't <laughs> need to read this. You know what? I think if you're going to make your name so long, you can't expect people to know who you are and to read your stories on a podcast two centuries in the future. She should have been thinking ahead. She huh? really should have been. Emma Magdalene, Rosalie Maria, Josefa, Barbala, Orsi, de Orki. Like, really? Yeah. I know. And then her husband, Henry, George, Montego, McLean, Barstow. Like, get a hold of yourself. We had trouble coming up with two names for you. <laughs> yeah, and it was going to be dumb names, too. I had some very cool names picked out. Yeah, I would have been made fun of. Possibly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why. I, anyway, not the point. Let's tell a story, Jack. Okay. All right. Here we're going straight into it. We are ready for the old man and the case of Miss Elliot. Jack, pick out whatever bass rhythm you want to play today. Chapter 1, Murder or Suicide The man in the corner was watching me over the top of his great bone-rimmed spectacles. Well, he said after a little while. Well, I repeated with some acerbity. I've been wondering for the last 10 minutes how many more knots he could manage to make in that same bit of string before he actually started undoing them again. Do I fidget you? He asked apologetically, while his long bony fingers buried themselves in the string, knots and all, into a capricious pocket. Oops, and my whole script just disappeared. Hold on. Okay, I found my page. Do I fidget you, he asked apologetically, while his long bony fingers buried themselves, string knots and all, into the capricious pockets of his magnificent tweed ulster. Yes, that is another awful tragedy, he said quietly after a while. Lady doctors are just having a pretty bad time of it just now. This was also his usual habit of speaking in response to my thoughts. There was no doubt that at the present moment my mind was filled with that extraordinary mystery which was settling all Scotland Yard by the ears. They had completely thrown into the shade the sad story of Miss Hickman's tragic fate. The Daily Telegraph printed two, column head, two columns headed Murder or Suicide on the subject of the mysterious death of Miss Elliot, matron of the convalescent home in Suffolk Avenue. And I must confess that a more profound and bewildering mystery has never before been set before our able detective department. It has puzzled them this time, and no mistake, said the old man in the corner with one of his most gruesome chuckles, but I dare say the public is quite satisfied that there is no solution to be found since the police have found none. Can you find one? I retorted with withering sarcasm. Oh, my solution would only be sneered at, he replied. It is far too simple and yet logical. There was Miss Elliot, a good-looking, youngish, ladylike woman, fully qualified in the medical profession, and in charge of the convalescent home in Suffolk Avenue, which is a private institution largely patronized by the benevolent. 
For some time already, there had appeared vague comments and rumors in various papers that the extensive charitable contributions did not all go towards the upkeep of the home. But, as is usual in institutions of that sort, the public was not allowed to know anything very definitive. The contributions continued to flow in, whilst the honorary treasurer of the great convalescent home kept up his beautiful house in Hamilton Terrace, in a style which would not have shamed a peer of the realm. This is how the matter stood, he said. When on 2nd November last, the morning papers contained a brief announcement that at a quarter past midnight, two workmen walking along Bloomfield Road suddenly came across the body of a young woman lying on her face close to the wooden steps of the narrow footbridge which at this point crosses the canal. This part is, you know, very lonely at times, but at night it is usually quite deserted. Bloomfield Road, with its row of small houses and its bit of front gates, faces the canal and beyond the footbridge is continued in a series of small riverside wharves, which is practically unknown ground to most L Londoners. The footbridge itself, with steps at right angles and high wooden parapets, would offer excellent shelter at all hours of night for any nefarious deeds. It was within its shadows that the men had found the body, and to their credit, be it said, they behaved like good and dutiful citizens one of them went off in search of the police while the other remained with the corpse. From papers and books found upon her person, it was soon ascertained that the deceased was Miss Elliot, the young matron of the Suffolk Avenue convalescent home. As she was very popular in her profession and had a great many friends, the terrible tragedy caused a sensation. All the more acute, as very quickly the rumor gained ground that the unfortunate young woman had taken her own life in a most gruesome and mysterious manner. Preliminary medical and police investigations had revealed the fact that Miss Elliot had died through a deep and scientifically administered gash in her throat, whilst the surgical knife with which the deadly wound was inflicted still lay tightly grasped in her clutched hand. Chapter 2. The House on a Cracked Foundation The man in the corner, ever conscious of any effect he produced upon my excited imagination, had paused for a while, giving me time, as it were, to coordinate in my mind a few simple facts he had put before me. I had no wish to make a remark, knowing of the old man that my one chance of getting the whole of his interesting argument was to offer neither comment nor contradiction. When a good-looking woman, in her heyday of her success, in an interesting position, he began at last, is alleged to have committed suicide, the outside public immediately want to know the reason. Why did she do such a thing? And a kind of Freemasonic amateur detective work goes on, which generally brings a few important truths to light. Thus, in the case of Miss Elliot, certain facts had begun to leak out even before the inquest with its many sensational developments. Rumors concerning the internal administration, or rather maladministration, of the home began to take a more definite form. That its finances have been very shaky condition for some time was known to all who were interested in its welfare. What was not so universally known was that few hospitals 
had had more magnificent donations and subscriptions showered upon them in recent years, and yet it was openly spoken by all of the nurses that Miss Elliot had on more than one occasion petitioned for actual necessities for patients, necessities which were denied to her on the plea of necessary economy. The convalescent home was, as sometimes happens in institutions of this sort, under the control of a committee of benevolent and fashionable people who understood nothing about business, and less still about the management of a hospital. Dr. Kennard, president of the institution, was a young, eminently successful consultant. He had recently married the daughter of a peer who was boundlessly ambitious for herself and her husband. Dr. Kennard, by adding the prestige of his name to the home, no doubt felt that he had done his, his duty for its welfare. Against that, Dr. Stapleton, honorary secretary and treasurer of the home, threw himself heart and soul into the work connected with it and gave a great deal of his time to it. All subscriptions and donations, of course, went through his hands, the benevolent and fashionable committee being only too willing to shift their financial responsibilities onto his willing shoulders. He was a very popular man in society, a bachelor with a magnificent house in Hamilton Terrace, where he entertained the more eminent and fashionable clique in his own profession. It was the evening papers, however, which contained the most sensational development of this tragic case. It appears that on the Saturday afternoon, Mary Dawson, one of the nurses of the home, was going to the house surgeon's office with a message from the head nurse when her attention was suddenly arrested in one of the passages by the sound of loud voices proceeding from one of the rooms. She paused to listen for a moment and at once recognized the voices of Miss Elliot and Dr. Stapleton, the honorary treasurer and chairman of the committee. The subject of conversation was evidently that of an eternal question of finance. Miss Elliot spoke very indignantly, and Nurse Dawson caught the words. Surely you must agree with me, Dr. Kennard. Ought to be informed at once. Dr. Stapleton's voice in reply seems to have been at first bitingly sarcastic and then threatening. Dawson heard nothing more after that and went on to deliver her message. On her way back, she stopped in the passage again and tried to listen. This time it seemed to her as if she could hear the sound of someone crying bitterly, and Dr. Stapleton's voice speaking very gently. You may be right, Nellie, he was saying. At any rate, wait a few days before telling Kennard. You know what he is. He'll make a frightful fuss, and... Whereupon, Miss Elliot interrupted him. It isn't fair to Dr. Kennard to keep him in ignorance any longer. Whoever the thief may be, it is your duty or mine to expose him, and if necessary, bring him to justice. There was a good deal of discussion at the time, if you remember, as to whether Nurse Dawson had overheard and repeated this speech accurately. Whether, in point of fact, Miss Elliot had used the word or, or the word and. Do you see the neat little point, don't you? continued the man in the corner. The little word and would imply that she considered herself at one with Dr. Stapleton in the matter, but or would mean she was resolved to act alone if he refused to join her in unmasking the thief. Chapter 3, The Coroner's Inquest 
All of these facts, as I remarked before, the old man said, had leaked out as such facts have a way of doing. No wonder, therefore, that on the day fixed for the inquest of the coroner's court was filled to overflowing, both with the public, ever eager for new sensations, and with the many friends of the deceased lady, among whom young medical students of both sexes and nurses in uniform were most conspicuous. I was there early, and therefore had a good seat, from which I could comfortably watch the various actors in the drama about to be performed. People who seemed to be in the note pointed out various people to one another, and it was a matter of note that, in spite of professional engagements, the members of the staff of the convalescent home were present in force and stayed almost the whole time. The people who chiefly arrested my attention were, firstly, Dr. Kennard, a good-looking Irishman of about 40 and president of the institution. Also, Dr. Earnshaw, a rising young consultant with boundless belief in himself written all over his pleasant round face. The expert medical evidence was once again thoroughly gone into. There was absolutely no doubt that Miss Elliot had died from having her throat cut with a surgical knife, which was found grasped in her right hand. There was absolutely no sign of a personal struggle in the imminent vicinity of the body, and rigid examination proved that there was no other mark of violence upon the body. There was nothing, therefore, to prove that the poor girl had not committed suicide in a moment of mental aberration or of great personal grief. Of course, it was strange that she would have chosen this curious mode of taking her own life. She had access to all kinds of poisons, amongst which her medical knowledge would prompt her to choose the least painful and most effective one. Therefore, to have walked down on a Sunday night to a wretched and unfrequented spot and there committed suicide in that grim fashion seemed almost the work of a madwoman. And yet the evidence of her family and friends all tended to prove Miss Elliot was particularly sane, large-minded, and a happy individual. However, the suicide theory was at this stage of the proceedings taken as being absolutely established. And when Police Constable Fisk came forward to give his evidence, no one in the court was prepared for a statement which suddenly revealed the case to be as mysterious as it was tragic. Fisk's story was this. Close upon midnight on that memorable Sunday night, he was walking down Bloomfield Road along the side of the canal and towards the footbridge when he overtook a lady and a gentleman who were walking in the same direction as himself. He turned to look at them and he noticed the gentleman was in evening dress and wore a high hat and that the lady was crying. Bloomfield Road is at best very badly lit, especially on the side next to the canal where there are no lamps at all. Fisk, however, was prepared to swear positively that the lady was the deceased. As for the gentleman, he might know him again, but he might not. Fisk then crossed the footbridge and walked on towards the Harrow Road. As he did so, he heard St. Mary Magdalene's church clock chime the hour of midnight. It was a quarter of an hour after that that the body of the unfortunate girl was found and clasping in her hand the knife with which the awful deed was done. By whom? Was it really by her own self? If so, why did not that man in the evening dress who had last seen her alive come forward and throw some light upon this vast thickening veil of mystery? It was Mr. James Elliot, 
brother of the deceased, however, who first mentioned a name, then an open court, which was the ever, which has ever since in the minds of everyone been associated with Miss Elliot's tragic fate. He was speaking in answer to the question of the coroner's, <laughs> the coroner's question about his sister's disposition and recent frame of mind. She was always extremely cheerful, he said, but recently had been particularly bright and happy. I understood from her that this was because she believed that a man for whom she had great regard was also very much attracted to her and meant to ask her to be his wife. And do you know who this man was, asked the coroner. Oh yes, replied Mr. Elliot. It was Dr. Stapleton. Chapter 4. Stapleton, Stapleton, Stapleton. Everyone had expected that name, of course, for everyone remembered Nurse Dawson's story. Yet when it came, there crept over all those present an indescribable feeling that something terrible was impending. Is Dr. Stapleton here? the coroner asked. But Dr. Stapleton had sent an excuse. A professional case of the utmost urgency had kept him at the patient's bedside. But Dr. Kennard, the president of the institution, came forward. Questioned by the coroner, Dr. Kennard, however, who evidently had a great regard for his colleague, repudiated any idea that the funds of the institution had been tampered with by the treasurer. The very suggestion of such a thing, he said, was an outrage upon one of the most brilliant men in the profession. He further added, although he knew that Dr. Stapleton thought very highly of Miss Elliot, he did not think there was any actual engagement, and most decidedly, he, Dr. Kennard, had heard nothing of any disagreement between them. Then did Dr. Stapleton never tell you that Miss Elliot had often chafed under the extraordinary economy practiced in her richly endowed home? The coroner asked. No, replied Dr. Elliot. Was that not rather strange? reticence? Certainly not, Dr. Kennard said. I am only the honorary president of the institution. Stapleton has chief control of the finances. Ah, remarked the coroner rather blandly. However, Kennard continued, it was clearly no business of his at this moment to enter into financial affairs of the home. His duty at this point was to try to find out if Stapleton and the man in the evening dress were one and the same. The man who found the body testified to the hour, a quarter past midnight. As Fisk had seen the unfortunate girl alive a little before 12, she must have been murdered or had committed suicide between midnight and quarter past. But there was more to come. How strange and dramatic it all was, continued the man in the corner, the bland smile, all together out of keeping with the poignancy of his narrative. All these people in that crowded court trying to reconstruct the last chapter of a bright young matron's life, but then I must not anticipate. One more witness was to be heard, one whom the police, with total unconscious sense of what is dramatic, had reserved for the last. This was Dr. Earnshaw, one of the staff of the convalescent home. His evidence was very short, but of deeply momentous import. He explained 
that he had consulting rooms in Weymouth Street, but resided in West in Westbourne Square. On Saturday, November 1st, he said he had been out dining in Maida Vale and returning home a little before midnight, saw a woman standing close by the steps of the footbridge in Bloomfield Road. I had been coming down Formosa Street, he said, and had not specially taken notice of her, when just as I reached the corner of Bloomfield Road, she was joined by a man in evening dress and a high hat. Then I crossed the road and I recognized both Miss Elliot and... The young doctor paused, almost as if hesitating before the enormity of what he was about to say, whilst the excitement in the court became almost painful. And, urged the coroner, and Dr. Stapleton, said Earnshaw at last, almost under his breath. Are you quite sure, asked the coroner. Absolutely positive, he said. I spoke with both of them and they spoke to me. What did you say, the coroner asked. Oh, the usual, hello, Stapleton, to which he replied, hello. And I said goodnight to both of them. Then Miss Elliot also said goodnight. I saw her face more clearly then, and I thought she looked very tearful and unhappy. And Stapleton looked ill-tempered. I wondered why they had chosen that unhallowed spot for a midnight walk. You say the hour was? asked the coroner. <coughs> Ten minutes to twelve. <coughs> and you say the hour was? asked the coroner. Ten minutes to twelve. I looked at my watch as I crossed the footbridge and heard a quarter to twelve strike five minutes before. Then it was that the coroner Then it was that the coroner adjourned the inquest. Dr. Stapleton's attendance had become absolutely imperative. According to Earnshaw's testimony, he had been with the deceased certainly a quarter of an hour before she met her terrible death. Fisk had seen them together ten minutes later she was crying bitterly. There was as yet no actual charge against the fashionable and rich doctor, but already the ghostly bird of suspicion had touched him with its ugly wing. Chapter 5, Dr. Earnshaw's Testimony The next as for the next day, continued the man in the corner after a slight pause, I can assure you that there was not a square foot of standing room in the coroner's court for the adjourned inquest. It was time for 11 a.m., and at 6 o'clock on that cold winter's morning, the pavement outside the court was already crowded. As for me, I always managed to get a front seat, as I did on that occasion, too. I fancy that I was the first among the general public to note Dr. Stapleton as he entered the room accompanied by a solicitor, and by Dr. Kennard, with whom he was chatting very cheerfully and pleasantly. Mind you, I'm a great admirer of the medical profession, and I think a clever and successful doctor usually has the most delightful air about him, a consciousness of great and good work done with profit to himself, which is quite unique and quite admirable. Dr. Stapleton had that air even to a greater extent than his colleague, and from the affectionate way in which Dr. Kennard finally shook him by the hand, it was quite clear that the respected chief of the convalescent home, at any rate, refused to harbor any suspicion of the integrity of its treasurer. 
Well, I must not weary you by dwelling on the unimportant details of this momentous inquest. Constable Fisk, who is asked to identify the gentleman in the evening dress whom he saw with the deceased a few minutes before 12, failed to recognize Dr. Stapleton very positively. Pressed very closely, he finally refused to swear either way. Against that, Dr. Earnshaw repeated, clearly and categorically, looking his colleague straight in the face the while, the damnatory evidence he had given the day before. I saw Dr. Stapleton. I spoke to him. He spoke to me, he repeated most emphatically. Everyone in that court was watching Dr. Stapleton's face, which wore an air of supreme nonchalance, even of contempt, but certainly neither of guilt nor fear. Of course, by that time I had fully made up my mind as to where the hitch lay in this extraordinary mystery, but no one else had, and everyone held their breath as Dr. Stapleton quietly stepped into the box, and after a few preliminary questions, the coroner asked him very abruptly, were you in the company of the deceased a few minutes before she died, Dr. Stapleton? Pardon me, required the latter quietly. I last saw Miss Elliot alive on Saturday afternoon, just before I went home from my work. Well, this calm reply, delivered without a tremor, positively made everyone gasp. From the moment, the coroner and jury were alike staggered. But we have two witnesses here who saw you in the company of the deceased within a few minutes at 12 o'clock on Sunday night. The coroner managed to gasp out at last. Pardon me, again interposed the doctors. These witnesses were mistaken. Mistaken? I think everyone would have shouted the word in boundless astonishment had they dared to do so. Dr. Earnshaw was mistaken, reiterated Dr. Stapleton quietly. He neither saw me, nor did he speak to me. Can you substantiate that, of course, queried the coroner. Pardon me, the doctor said once more with utmost calm. It is surely Dr. Earnshaw who should substantiate his statement. There's Constable Fisk's corroboration evidence for that, retorted the coroner, somewhat nettled. Hardly, I think, the doctor said. You see, the constable states that he saw a gentleman in evening dress, etc., talking to the deceased a minute or two before 12 o'clock, and that when he heard the clock of St. Mary Magdalene chime the hour of midnight, he was just walking away from the footbridge. Now, just at that very church clock was chiming that hour, I was stepping into a cab at the corner of Harrow Road, not a hundred yards in front of Constable Fisk. You swear to that, queried the coroner in amazement. I can easily prove it, said Dr. Stapleton. The cabman who drove me th from there to my club is here and can corroborate my statement. And amidst boundless excitement, John Smith, a handsome cab driver, stated that he was hailed in Harrow Road by the last witness who told him to drive to the Royal Clinical Club in Martin Street. Just as he started off, St. Mary Magdalene's Church close by struck the hour of midnight. At that very moment, if you remember, Constable Fisk had just crossed the footbridge and was walking towards Harrow Road, and he was quite sure, for he was closely questioned afterwards, that no one overtook him from behind. Now there would be no way of getting from one side of the canal to the other except over the footbridge. The nearest bridge is a full 200 yards further down Bloomfield Road. The girl was alive a minute before the constable crossed the footbridge, 
and it would have been absolutely impossible for anyone to have murdered the girl, placed the knife in her hand, and run a couple hundred yards to the next bridge, and another 300 to the corner of Harrow Road, all in the space of three minutes. This alibi therefore absolutely cleared Dr. Stapleton from any suspicion of having murdered Miss Elliot. And yet, looking on that man as he sat there, calm, cool, and contemptuous, no one could have ha had the slightest doubt but that he was lying, lying when he said that he had not seen Miss Elliot that evening, lying when he denied Dr. Earnshaw's statement, lying when he professed himself ignorant of the poor girl's fate. Dr. Er Dr. Earnshaw repeated his statement with the same emphasis, but it was one man's word against another, and as Dr. Stapleton was so glaringly innocent of the actual murder, there seemed no valid reason at all why he should have been denied having seen her that night, and the point was allowed to drop. As for Nurse Dawson's story of his alleged quarrel with Miss Elliot on Saturday night, Dr. Stapleton again had a simple, logical explanation. People who listen at keyholes, he said quietly, are apt to hear only fragments of a conversation and often mistake ordinary loud voices for quarrels. As a matter of fact, Miss Elliot and I were discussing the dismissal of certain nurses from the home who she deemed incompetent. Nurse Dawson was among that number. She desired their immediate dismissal and I tried to pacify her. That was the subject of my conversation with the deceased lady. I can swear to every word of it. Right, Jack now we're at the part of the story where you get to catch the killer so we have a couple characters it here it was Mary Magdalene you <laughs> think it was not Mary Magdalene she's a church uh, I thought she was a <laughs> never mind we're gonna stop that anyway so we have Dr. Earnshaw who had been out to dinner and claims that he saw Stapleton and Miss Elliot we have Stapleton who denies that he was with Miss Elliot. He hadn't seen her for the day before. Uh, the other characters we have are Nurse Dawson, who was the nosy busybody who was listening at, at the keyholes. And we have Dr. Kennard, who is the president of the association. Who are you going to put your quarter on? Um, so here's the deal. I don't know half these characters. I fell asleep. He says he falls asleep, but he's playing the piano this whole time. Uh, I've been sitting in a basically a ball, if you haven't looked, over. Uh, yeah. Um, anyway, I bet it was uh, the church. You're still betting on the church. I'm betting on the clock tower bell thing. You know, the, Like the one in Back to the Future? No, nah, the one they've been talking about in the, uh, the, 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 the story. You pick the most interesting characters. Well, I'll bet. Here's how I think it happened. All right. So, you know, the bell's swinging back and forth. Yes. I bet the 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 lady with the scalpel or whatever she stabbed herself with tied it to the part of the bell that swings and hits the side of the bell. So yeah. when it hit it, you know, it hit it and it flung off and it shot like a mile or however far away it is and hit her right in the neck. And she went, oh, no. And she grabbed it. And in a panic, she pulled it out, and she died. And so I'm blaming the church bell tower. Okay, okay. So 
before we get into the big reveal, um, I wanted to mention, you know, at the start of the episode, I told you about Frank Zafiro's latest book, Dirty Little Town. I sure do. Well, Frank also hosts his own podcast. It's called Right Place, Wrong Crime. That's W-R-I-T-E. And he actually featured us on there when um, my last book came out. Whoa. Frank interviews uh, mystery and thriller writers of all styles and subgenres. And the coolest thing is that his podcast is not really about writing. It's about all the things that people do that lead up to why they started writing and why they, how they created their characters. So um, I want to encourage everybody, if you love mysteries and you want to learn more about mystery writers, to check out Frank's podcast, Right Place, Wrong Crime, as well as his book, Dirty Little Town. Wait, what did you say his last name was? Zafiro, Z-A-F-I-R-O. I don't know why I heard Sinatra. I guess I'm just <laughs> tired. Anyway, sounds like a cool guy. One Italian is as good as another. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as an Italian, we should know. We should know. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what the G stands for. Yep. Giamarco. Sure, sure does. One one last thought, or one last last thought. Did you know the holidays were coming? Nope. I have been in a coma for 48 uh, years. <laughs> well, I have a great gift idea for our listeners who want to give a one-of-a-kind gift to a mystery lover. Uh, an originally signed copy of any of my books with a customized inscription based on, on their notes of the person. It's only available direct from me. So if you're interested, drop me an email. I'm at Tina at TG Wolf. That's W-O-L-F-F dot com. Okay, Jack. Wait, we're did you just say at Tina at G Wolf? Tina. Yeah. At. At. TG Wolf. You know my name. How do you write that into an email? Tina, and then you put the little at symbol. I, I, I'm tired. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> He's very tired. If, if this 18-year-old doesn't know how to do an at symbol. long ceased speaking and was placing quietly before me a number of photographs. One by one, I saw the series of faces which had been watched so eagerly in the coroner's court that memorable afternoon by an excited crowd. So the fate of poor Miss Elliot has remained wrapped in mystery, I said thoughtfully, to everyone who joined the funny creature except me. Ah, what is your theory then, I asked. A simple one, dear lady, so simple that it really amazes me that no one, not even you, my faithful pupil, have thought of it. It may be so simple that it becomes idiotic, I retorted with lofty dissidence. Well, that may be, he said. Shall I at any rate try to make it clear? I inclined my head. If you like, he toyed with the string again. For this, I think the best way would be if you were to follow me through what transpired before the inquest. But first tell me, what do you think of Dr. Earnshaw's statement? Well, I replied, a good many people thought it was he who murdered Miss Elliot, and that his story of meeting Dr. Stapleton with her was a lie from beginning to end. 
Impossible, he retorted, making an elaborate knot in his bit of string. Dr. Earnshaw's friends, with whom he'd been dining that night, swore that he was not in evening dress, nor did he wear a high hat. And on that point, the evening dress and the hat, Constable Fisk was most positive. Well then, Dr. Earnshaw was mistaken. It was not Stapleton he met. Impossible, he shrieked, while another knot went to join its fellow. He spoke to Stapleton, and Stapleton spoke to him. Very well, then, I argued. Why should Stapleton tell a lie about it? He had such a conclusive alibi that there could be no object in his making a false statement about that. No objects, shrieked the excited creature. Why, don't you see that he had to tell the lie in order to set the police, coroner, and jury by the ears? because he did not wish it to be even remotely hinted at that the man who Dr. Earnshaw saw with Miss Elliot and the man who the Constable Fisk saw with her 10 minutes later were two different people. Two different people, I, I screamed. Aye, two Confederates in this villainy. No one has ever attempted to deny the truth of the shaky finances of the home. No one has really denied that Miss Elliot suspected certain, certain thefts and was trying to force the hands of the honorary treasurer towards a full inquiry. That the honorary treasurer knew where all the money went to was pretty clear all along. His magnificent house in Hamilton Terrace fully testifies to that. That the president of the institution was a party to these thefts and largely profited from them, I am I am equally convinced. Dr. Kennard, I said. I, Dr. Kennard. Do you mean to tell me that he alone, among the entire staff of the home, was ignorant of the thefts? Impossible. If he knew of them, and did neither inquire into them, nor attempt to stop them, then he must have been a party to them. Do you admit that? Oh, yes, I admit that, I replied. Very well, then. The rest is quite simple. These two men, unworthy to bear the noble appellation of doctor, must for years have quietly stolen the money subscribed for the benevolent for the home and converted it to their own use. Then they suddenly find themselves face to face with immediate discovery in the shape of a young girl determined to unmask the systematic fraud of the past few years. That meant exposure, disgrace, ruin for both of them, and they determined to be rid of her. Under the pretense of an evening walk, her so-called lover entices her to a lonely and suitable spot. His confederate is close by, hidden in the shadows, ready to give his assistance if the girl struggles and screams. But suddenly Dr. Earnshaw appears. He recognizes Stapleton and challenges him. For a moment, the villains are nonplussed. Then Kennard, the clever of the two, steps forward greets the two lovers unconcernedly, and after two minutes' conversation, casually reminds Stapleton of an appointment the latter is presumed to have at a club in St. James Street. The latter understands and takes the hint, takes a quick farewell of the girl, leaving her in his friend's charge, then, as fast as he can, goes off, presently takes a cab, leaving his friend to do the deed, whilst the alibi he can prove, coupled with Earnshaw's statement, was sure to bewilder and mislead the police and the public. Thus it was 
Thus it was, though Earnshaw saw and recognized Dr. Stapleton, Constable Fisk saw Dr. Kennard, whom he did not recognize, on whom no suspicion has fallen, and whose name has never been coupled with that of Miss Elliot. When Constable Fisk had turned his back, Kennard murdered the girl and went off quietly, while Stapleton, on whom all suspicions were bound to fasten sooner or later, was able to prove the most perfect alibi ever concocted. One day I feel certain that there, that the frauds at the home will be discovered and then who knows what may else come to light. Think of it all quietly when I'm gone, he said, and tomorrow when we meet, tell me whether I'm wrong and what your explanation is of this extraordinary mystery. Before I could reply, the old man had gone and I was left wondering, gazing at the photographs of two good-looking, highly respectable and respected men whom an animated scarecrow had just boldly accused of committing one of the most dastardly crimes ever recorded in our annals. So there you go. So here's the aftermath. There we have it. The murder was a conspiracy by doctors Kennard and Stapleton. I am sorry, Jack. The Church of St. Mary Magdalene did not do it. So the old man in the corner does a pretty thorough job of walking through the logic of the mystery, calling out the bits and pieces in the original story that didn't make sense. This one can be kind of difficult for us mystery lovers because there isn't a lot of facts to sink our teeth into. The old man solves it by deducing the solution, and as he states at the start of the story, no one would believe his solution because there is no evidence. One point of curiosity, at the start of the story, a Miss Hickman is referenced. I could find no reference to this name. It may be some sort of Easter egg for the original readers to the story, or it may be an error in the editing, but I left it there because I thought it was pretty amusing. And so, that wraps up this, mystery, this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Information is in the show notes and on our website at tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. The Case of Miss Elliot was written by Baroness Emma Ortsey, edited by T.G. Wolf. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Hey, 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 hey. You cannot just shorten her name to Emma Ortsey. This is Emma Magdalene Rosalie Maria Josephi. <laughs> Josepha. Uh, sorry, let me say that again. Emma Magdalene Rosalie Maria Josepha Barbala Ortsey de Orki. <laughs> what he said. Thank you so much for joining us. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode, and we'll get in and solve another mystery together. All right, Jack, the mic is yours. Mm-hmm.